Hello listeners, I'm Carl Anker and welcome to Talk of Devils, the Manchester United podcast from The Athletic. As ever, I'm joined by the best Manchester United partnership since the days of Scholes and Keane, or at least since Carrick and Fletcher. Coming up first is The Athletic's Manchester United row, Laurie Whitwell. Laurie, which of those midfielders do you want to be? Um, I'd probably go for uh, a bit of a Fletcher, you know, a bit, bit of spike to him, um, you know, had a, had a few... I'd had to make a comeback from you know early setbacks in his career. I, I quite like that. I quite like the Darren Fletcher story. So yeah, I'll, I'll go for that one. Uh, I should also introduce. It's United We Stand editor and contributing writer to the Athletic, Andy Min. Hi, Carl. Hi, Laurie. <laughs> How you doing, my friend? Better pull up some stories today, aren't I? With that billing, I've all done, Laurie. I'd take legal action here, Laurie, if I was you. No, don't. You, you, you take the limelight, Andy. It's all good. <laughs> he, but he chose Fletcher. It's so obviously you have to be Carrick. Um, don't forget, listener, you can enjoy The Athletic for a free 90-day trial by going to theathletic.com slash manunitedpod. That's theathletic.com slash manunitedpod. Right then, first order of business. Director of football, it's been close to two years, and Laurie, you've written basically a stunning piece about where Manchester United are in their pursuit of a director of football, which apparently seems to be nowhere. You're trying to schmooze me there, Carl, with, with the use of stunning. <laughs> you've won, you've, you've won, flattery will get you everywhere. Um, yeah, well, to be honest, it was it's a piece that has kind of been born out from um, a load of questions from readers. Obviously, we, we like to have Q&As and it just kept coming up. You know, what's the latest with director of football? Various names that have been floated about in, in reports. And to be honest, since um, last summer, really, I had sort of written a piece when I was at my previous employer's The Daily Mail, sort of saying that actually it was probably more on the back burner. Um, so I, I didn't really see seem like that much of a a surprise to me to um sort of put this piece out there that I was just sort of readjusting the um the landscape a little bit in terms of what United um you know perhaps might want I mean listen I don't think they've you know I think they'll still have conversations with people about a potential you know role what that would be called I don't know but in terms of a director of football as you say calling the shots um having leading the vision you know making signings and and appointing managers it's just not going to happen at United They're, they're very happy with the current structure where you've got Ole Gunnar Solskjaer um, I suppose as a de facto almost sporting director in, in the kind of mould that Sir Alex Ferguson was, direct line to Ed Woodward, their relationship described as vital. Um, and, you know, they've got the recruitment side as well. Um, so you've got sort of two different strands, each, you know, either the management side or the recruitment side has the power of veto. And, you know, they, they feel like that's a good system to kind of maintain um, the continuity and get the kind of right signings. Um, obviously, that is open to criticism and, and, and we'll see whether that is the case, you know, for example, beyond Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, you know, that's the kind of idea of a director of football that you, you have continuity from manager to manager in terms of the squad because we've seen after Moyes, after Van Gaal, after Mourinho, you know, a complete shift from playing style and, and more money spent. So, um, yeah, it's definitely open to criticism. But I, yeah, as I, as I sort of said at the start, it's not really going to be this um, unicorn figure, as one person said, to me that, that comes in and, and, and changes everything up. Andy, you've been tracking this director of football story for a while. Is this in keeping with Manchester United's sort of classic history with you know the late days of Alex Ferguson? I remember writing this story on a train to Basel about four years ago saying <laughs> the, what the intention was and, and, and that shifted. I think the bottom line is managers don't want directors of football coming in and taking away their power, whichever way they try and dress it up. Um, Jose Mourinho didn't want that and I don't think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wants that because he feels that the the current structure which is in place is sufficient and is working and is actually doing very well. And if we were talking now at the end of January after a bad run of results, the mood would be totally different 
But because we're talking after things have improved, there's less pressure. The subject dies away. People talk about it less to the point that when Laurie writes a piece, he's absolutely right when he says this is improbable. What has happened in the last year? Some of the best sporting directors in the world have offered themselves to Manchester United and they've been told thanks, but no thanks. So it then boils down to who is recruiting players. And even this changes in terms of perception on a month to month. So go to October and there's a little bit of, I wouldn't say a witch hunt, that's, that's too strong a word, but who actually signed Fred? Who bought Fred to the club? And fingers being pointed a little bit, He's the one who sanctioned it. You should be grilling him. That's the type of thing people were saying to me. And what happens when Fred starts doing brilliantly? It just melts away. They, the people just melt away. The criticisms melt away. Then you start hearing, I always knew he was good. I always knew he'd come good. They've got it spot on the club. And people are hypocrites and they're fickle. And this this is the footballing in, in, environment. And what do I think will happen now? I don't think there's any appointment imminent. I think the point that Ed Woodward made to me when I, I, I really pushed him on this in October was I'm not responsible for any football decisions. That was basically what he was saying. There's a perception that I'm watching football manager and saying he looks good, can we chase it up? And I do nothing of the sort. I cannot spot a player. It's not in my um, skill set to spot a good footballer. And he, say, he said all that on the record. So who is spotting the footballers for Manchester United? Ed talked a lot about the database, the scouts, the analysis team. It's definitely changed. Long gone are the days of Fergie, uh, his eye being caught by a player and flying off to watch him. There's not enough time for Ollie to do that now. So United are getting the recommendations and sometimes Ollie is seeing players and he's asking roundabout people. So if there's a player who's played in Spain, he'll ask David De Gea, he'll ask Juan Mata. If it's someone who's crossed paths within Norway, he'll do he'll do a character reference uh, on them. But he'll also allow people around him to do their jobs. And his own relationship with Ed Woodward is a good one. They challenge each other. They're not going in high-fiving each other every morning. Good. They don't need to be doing that. And I think it's a working relationship. And I don't think Jose Mourinho always, always had that with, with Ed Woodward. They're okay now, but I think there's times where they were not on good terms with each other. And and that tension showed. And what you then get is stuff leaking out to the media, which doesn't help anybody. And I think a lot of that has gone. We spoke about this setup last week where sort of Solskjaer works as a more or less figurehead with Mike Phelan, who talks to Ed Woodward. And then underneath, you've got Carrick and McKenna. This sounds quite similar to the days of Alex Ferguson and Gill. And then Ferguson below him had a series of coaches. Is this... Like, is Ollie basically the the new Alex Ferguson here, Laurie? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Sir Alex had uh, years and years of, of success and experience, so it's difficult to compare. But certainly, I think the mould of of, of of structure of, of club is is what um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is, is sort of after, and he's, he's kind of got that. He's got you know authority. You know, he's um, he's he's got ways of, of um, suggesting players and, and, and getting what he wants. All the players that have come in have obviously been players that he's said yes to and, and, and has, has actively wanted. Um, I suppose with Sir Alex, he just had years of, of relationships that he built up, networks and, and leverage, I suppose. Solskjaer obviously has that to a degree, but not the same level. Um, so, you know, gone are the days where you had, you know, perhaps um, Steve Bruce offering Antonio Valencia to, to his former manager, you know, and saying it, it could get him for this kind of price. And, you know, I don't think there's any 
anybody necessarily saying that, although obviously United are still an attractive proposition for agents to, to pitch players into um, and what have you. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the kind of sort of look that, that Solskjaer is going for. And I, and I think, as Andy says, the the relationship with with Woodward is is good. Um, they can have you know robust conversations, um, and you know Woodward, whilst he he uh, it was an excellent interview by Andy in, in United We Stand, really interesting stuff. Um, but I, I do I think he does have a say on the budget, so that would for me. I, I interpret that as a, a sort of, you know, direction on the on the football side because, you know, ultimately you have the Bruno situation where they're negotiating over the price, and you know, as United would do, try and get a lower price. But I think that obviously then has a, an influence on the football matters because it, it takes, you know, an extra couple of weeks to get him in the door. So, um, and and as we've seen, you know, Ed Woodward has been, you know, he was with Solskjaer, um talking to Erling Haaland in December he was um at Carrington for Jude Bellingham's uh, tour around you know the, the training ground you know along with others such as Solskjaer and and, and uh, Sir Alex Ferguson so um it, but he is he is involved in, in in that regard but I think that's probably you know what you do you need that from a, a chief exec who you know ultimately will you know write the checks you know from the Glazer family um so Whereas I think people might see the director of football as that kind of role where they're the ones deciding what the prices are and, and how contracts are negotiated. It's not going to happen at United. And as Andy says, there's certainly been very good sporting directors talked about at United or, or talked with. And the message that I always heard that was, that was sort of reported back to them was that the, the role was, was kind of diluted. It wasn't what most people interpret as a director of football, a sporting director. It was kind of more of a, um, a communication role rather than a, an authoritative a guiding role. So, and you could, you could see that with, you know, the, the, the way that those stories kind of disappeared a little bit. And then also the ex-players was, was another thing that I think um, United did, you know, tap into, um, you know, we had Rio Ferdinand, we had Patrice Ever and Emmanuel Vidic, I think, and Andy would know more than me on that one, hmm. um, but I, I, they they were I think consulted more on a, an a sort of informal opinion um, basis rather than a, a kind of genuine let's let's get to the nitty gritty and see if you can actually be this this figure for us. So I think that's where we're at, and I just as, as Andy says, I just can't see anything changing particularly imminently. And um, one thing I did want to just mention actually that's in the piece was was I sort of thought. Um, a new name was kind of interesting. We've obviously heard about Marcel Boot and, and Mick Court and Jim Lawler as the sort of chief scouts. Uh, and then um, Simon Wells, who's obviously Solskjaer's sort of personal scout. Stephen Brown was a sort of new name to me that was that was brought up in, in doing this piece. And he's the head of scouting operations. So he sort of links the science with the kind of first-hand scouting reports that, that United get. So it's um, a, a kind of newer role that, that you know, um, I guess shows that the... Um, influence of, of, of data analysis so um so yeah i mean i've kind of rambled on for quite a while there haven't i but that's that's kind of my view on things the analysis is is really important and the club take it really importantly and where edward wood might come in as well as controlling the purse strings if you like is if you have a player who wants to leave let's call him anthony martial going back to the start of, of last season and his manager is also happy to sell him normally at a football club with those two powers wanting the same thing a player will go but Ed Woodward decided that he shouldn't be sold. Is he undermining the manager there? Or is he taking on the opinions of the football experts, some of whom Laurie just mentioned? And there are some really good CVs of people working at Manchester United who don't have the fanciest titles, but they've been working at a very high level at some of the best clubs in the world. And if three or four of them say to Woodward, um, 
Martial has got a future at Manchester United. He's, he should you should not be sold for many many reasons. Then he's acted uh, upon that, and he's probably made the right decision there. I think people will argue about Anthony Martial for, for, forever, but that's another thing that he does. And with Fergie and, and David Gill, yeah, Laurie's absolutely right. Ollie's not built up the experience or the bank of credit that Fergie did. And you know, Fergie, if he needed a goalkeeper. He'd ring his old mate in Holland, who he trusted when it came to goalkeepers, and he said, "Yeah, there's a guy called um, Raymond van der Howe will do this for you." And that's that's only going to come with time for Oli Gunnar. He does it already. He's, he's got Norway covered, for example, but that's not Brazil. It's not South America. But he's starting to bring people in who, who've got a good global view on things. And one player said to me about um, Gill and Fergie, he said. David Gill is the only person I've seen bollocks Sir Alex Ferguson. And that was really needed because he was the one who kept him in line. Because Fergie got most things right, but he's human. He makes mistakes. He doesn't get everything right, especially when it's away from his area of expertise, which is picking a a winning football team. And Gill himself got things wrong. He got it totally wrong with the communication with fans after the Glazer takeover. He just cut all the communication and the club are much, much better now in the way that they've re-established that. But that Fergie-Gill axis, it definitely worked. And there was a bit of devilment with it. They started to really enjoy signing players without anybody finding out about it. So if you look at Anderson and Nanny, nobody had a sniff of it. Nobody had a clue until the deal had been done. And you could just imagine them flying back to Manchester, having been in Porto, going, we've done them there. We've done those journalists there. And it just, I, I just can't see it happening now because someone would spot them on social media coming through the private uh, VIP lounge at Porto Airport or one of Anderson's mates would tell somebody. But it worked for that time. But I'm pretty confident that the people at the club now, it's starting to work. We're starting to see the evidence of that. There's still a long way to go, but I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I ask a lot of questions about this and so does Laurie. And I think they're on the right footing. The Athletic goes back to the 1998-99 season, which of course is the year Sir Alex Ferguson led Manchester United to an unprecedented treble. This episode, we're going to go back to a game 21 years ago where in the middle of a title race with Arsenal, Manchester United had to travel to face Liverpool and they drew two all. Weird game. I want to hear your thoughts about this, Andy. Uh, Apparently, a certain man called Portance had a big impact. He did. Well, you said title race then. And what a title race. You're into May and you've got United on 35 points, 35 games, 72 points, three points behind Arsenal with a game in hand. That's how close it is right at the end of the season. And United went to Liverpool, which is probably the biggest fixture in English football, and they went 2-0 up. And they were playing absolutely brilliantly. Dwight York, Dennis Irwin scored a penalty. Everything's flying. And then Liverpool come back and they don't come back in conventional style. Ferguson was outraged with the decisions by the referee, David Ellery. He he called him afterwards. I don't see the Harrow schoolmaster as being anti-Manchester United, but you know as he said that, that he was absolutely fuming and he absolutely saw the Harrow schoolmaster as being anti-Manchester United. And then Paul Ince got a a last-minute equaliser for Liverpool, which he celebrated 
uh, with great enthusiasm and there are Manchester United fans who have not forgiven Paul Ince to this day. Paul Ince was a brilliant player for Manchester United. He really was. And I've spoken to him quite a lot about his time at United and what happened since. And he's actually very topical this week because he's put his name to a column. I'm not sure it's a good idea for Paul Ince to do this because it's very clickbaity and he seems to be digging out United all the time. And with his spell at Manchester United, I'd say that history is written by the victors and Sir Alex Ferguson's view of Ince's time is the one which is accepted. Ince was actually a brilliant player and was well within his rights to join Inter Milan. Fergie told him that he was prepared to sell him. He accepted a bid for him. That was news to Paul Ince at the time. And he'll go on the record and say that. However, if you tell that story to his teammates, they'll go, bullshit, he wanted to go. He wanted to leave. So, once again, there seems to be two versions of the truth within football. Ince was a great player. He went to Liverpool. It adds to it because players don't tend to play for United and Liverpool. They don't go between the two clubs. And he didn't go directly. But in Ince's mind, he was in Milan. He got offered to play for Liverpool. They're a huge club. They've won stuff back in the day. They used to win. The, they used to be champions of England a long, long time ago. But look, they're, they are Liverpool. Paul Ince stayed living in the Liverpool area. They're a huge club. They might be attractive if you're Paul Ince um, in Milan. But it's, it's still a very, very interesting subject. But that was a two-all game. It was a bitter bitter atmosphere that night but Liverpool were Liverpool were nowhere Liverpool were 7th or 8th in the table it was all about United and Arsenal can you remember it Laurie? I, I, very vaguely I must have when it went on TV I just remember feeling like it was um, you know it was 2-0 Aaron got sent off didn't he for that ridiculous you know sort of kicking the ball away and, and the penalties that the penalty that, that Liverpool got was obviously never a pen um, <laughs> uh, and I just yeah just remember thinking you know, deflation but no, I don't, I don't, to be honest, I, it's a bit hazy for me, that, that one, because um, well, obviously I wasn't uh, there. So, Irwin would, Irwin, because he got sent off and he shouldn't have been sent off, he would then miss the FA Cup final. So there, there were big implications um, for this. And it, it was, it reminded me a little bit of when United went 3-1 up at Anfield uh, in 94, I think it was, in, in, when Cantona was so good. And then Liverpool came back. And if Liverpool... A smelling blood against Manchester United is a very difficult place for an away team to go to. But a 2 all draw at Anfield, United was, was still in with a shout of a league title which they would win. But there was a little bit of it where you thought there's two points dropped here. And it was just a brilliant title race. And looking at it now, because we've seen in recent seasons, nothing as close as that. But yeah, United and, and Liverpool. And even Chelsea. Chelsea were one point behind Manchester United. They played the game more, but Chelsea were third, one point behind Manchester United. So it could have gone not just between United and Arsenal, but Chelsea as well. I want to get your thoughts on Anfield as a as a ground to visit. So last week you talked a little bit about your trips to Ellen Road. How does Anfield compare? An away game at Anfield, what's that as a United fan? It's a lot safer than it used to be. And I started going in the early 90s and people would tell me stories about the 80s where... It was like going to a war zone. It was dangerous. You would walk across Stanley Park and people would come up to you and ask you um, what the time was to gauge whether you had a Manchester accent. United fans would go there, they'd get slashed, they'd get beaten up. There'd be escorts back to Lime Street train station, which would be attacked by Liverpool hooligans. And when I started going, you had to have your wits about you. And even now, although it's a lot more tamer now, 
Um, but in recent years, United fans have still been attacked, but it's more isolated now. And I love it. I love the edge that comes with United and Liverpool. I hope Liverpool lose every game they play, but I also have a respect for them because they're a proper football club and they've won six European Cups and you can't deny it. They they have had brilliant players and brilliant managers throughout their history and they've got a great support. And I often use an example of them. When they were seventh in 90, uh, 2013, they attracted 90,000 people for a friendly game in Melbourne. They're massive. Liverpool are massive. They're nearly as big as United, but they are massive. And when you go to Anfield, um, it's brilliant because the best time I've seen in recent years was that Europa League game, 2016. I've never seen it as loud as that night. It helped that they beat Manchester United 2-0. United were dreadful. And the whole ground is bouncing so you'll never walk alone before the match. And you just hear, Manchester, Manchester, Manchester. And it's brilliant, that defiance that comes from 3,000 of you. And you know that you just hated that. It's a proper football ground, Anfield, as well. And I love it. I love going there. I love games between Manchester United and Liverpool. It's just, it often kills you as well because you, United's record there can be very, very much hit and miss. They tend to, they tended to be really good, United, when Liverpool were the best team. And then it goes in like cycles where you get runs and United will win one in eight there. And then they'll, they'll, go undefeated for six games there. But yeah, I, I love going to Anfield and some of the greatest moments following Manchester United have been there. And probably the worst moment, which was losing the league there in 92. And the whole ground was singing, have you ever seen United win the league? And there was a big flag. Um, form is temporary, class is permanent. And I walked out of Anfield that day and I was what, 18 and we were running coaches to the games and I'm responsible for three coaches, 150 fans. And older lads were saying to me, uh, and they were distraught. They, they, they never thought Manchester United would win the league. They'd been going for 26 years without seeing United win the league. And I'd never thought United would win the league either, leaving Anfield that day. That was a real low point as a Manchester United fan and how Liverpool fans rubbed that in. And I would do... Exactly the same if it was the other way around. <laughs> Laurie, could you share with me some of your memories of uh, trips to Anfield? I've got yeah, I've got nothing like the the colour that Andy has or, or the <laughs> the kind of frequency. It's it's just the one trip for me, which is when Moyes was manager. Um, I went with my dad, and um, it, he actually wrote a letter to United fans asking for everyone to applaud um, Bill Shankly's hundredth birthday. What would have been his hundredth birthday? So, um, and, and to be fair, all the United fans did, as Andy said. You know, you, you can respect you know other great managers really, and I think that was sort of fair enough for all the sort of tribalism. Um, and Anthony Crawler was in the crowd that day, the boxer. So um, he might even have a stronger Manchester accent than Andy. Um, <laughs> and he was he was very good. He was like posing for pictures with everybody. He's, he's a proper United fan. Uh, United lost one 0 Rubbish. Um, actual match. So yeah, there we go. <laughs> in, <laughs> In and out, yeah, so an interesting experience, but yeah, as Andy says, not a great uh, great one for enjoyment. But Laurie makes a good point about the respect, and, and that day the United fans, they respected um, Bill Shankly's memory. And there's been times, um, I, I recall Sir Bobby Charlton walking on the pitch, it was for one of the important anniversaries of the Hillsborough disaster, and Manchester United fans respected that. They really did. And I, I think that even after the Hillsborough um, disaster Alex Ferguson and Martin Edwards 
they drove to Anfield when all the flowers were being laid in front of the cop and it was a private uh, visit and they were absolutely distraught and they, they respected Liverpool and some, some of the greatest players in United and Liverpool's history were just about to join the other club. You know, Nemanja Vidic would have joined Liverpool if Ferguson wouldn't have really pushed pushed for him. Uh, Lou Macari was about to join Liverpool and sat in the main stand until Paddy Creran snuck in and went, what are you doing here? Um, Creran himself would have um, probably joined Liverpool. So there's so many what-ifs and degrees of separation and you end up favouring whoever signs for you. know. So Vidic becomes a hero for Manchester United and Liverpool fans hate him and think that Fernando Torres always had the better of him, which, of course, is completely untrue. <laughs> I want to go back to this 2-2 draw a little bit. Um, Dennis Owen scoring a penalty. Andy, where does he rank in penalty takers for Manchester United? Oh, he was brilliant. And, and he, he played... So many games for United. I think he's like seventh on the all-time appearance list. And he's played hundreds of games more than established heroes. Owen was cool. He was reliable. He was eight out of ten every week. He was a right-footed left back. I think even Liverpool fans would have not had a big grudge against Dennis Irwin. He would probably be the the least offensive Manchester United um, player to them. And he took top penalties. Um... Yes, for Blomquist, I think he he played he played that game and he he was played a part of, in one of the the penalties because Jamie Carragher had, had had smashed into Blomquist and that led to the penalty being awarded, which which Irwin took. And I've I've interviewed Blomquist for the Athletic, and it's going to be coming up in in a couple of weeks. And Jesper's quite a gentle soul, and you can see Jamie Carragher full of this sort of scouse anger against Man United and you know Jamie was an Everton fan as a kid but he's a proper football fan Jamie Jamie went to the 85 FA Cup final with his dad so he would have absolutely known what Man United Liverpool was and and poor old Jesper coming from the Arctic Circle just getting smashed um and then um, Dennis Irwin, uh, top man Irwin, is, is, is a United legend and he's still involved at the club. He works in an ambassadorial role and he's quite a dry, witty fella. I think him and Roy Keane were like both from Cork. One was south side, one was north side. They used to argue about which was better, the south side of Cork or the north side of Cork. And they were a good foil for each other as well. And you need that in, in dressing rooms. You know, it's not a clique. You need all these little relationships bouncing off each other. But Irwin, top man, scoring a penalty at Anfield, it's a difficult thing to do. And where are we going to put Paul Ince? Do you think Ince go down as beloved by United fans? Or is no. it slightly trickier? No. It's, it's trickier because history has been rewritten with Paul Ince. Paul Ince was a, a great Manchester United player who played 281 times for the club. You know, that was more than Andy Cole, more than Norman Whiteside, more than Edwin van der Sar, more than Lee Sharp. Ince was a top, top player. And he went to Milan at a time when you got a lot, lot more money to go to, to Syria. And he made that decision, all right? Don't necessarily agree with it, but... United fans were furious when he went. They were really furious that he, he was allowed to go. And there's all these different versions of why he went. But but his image among United fans is, is tainted because he played for Liverpool, because he celebrated so effusely. But to be fair to wins, he got stick all that night from United fans. So why wouldn't you celebrate like that? And 
Sir Alex Ferguson had called him Big Time Charlie on a on a television documentary, so there was a bit of personal edge between them two. But the, the, you're allowed to have two opinions on 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 somebody. And Roy Keane's quite good on this. He said, you know, "There's the Alex Ferguson view of the world, which is fine, but I'm also entitled to my opinion, and I'm entitled to disagree with him." And Roy Keane disagrees with him, and Paul Ince disagrees with him. Ince was a top top um, footballer. He served United well. Um, but he, he he joined in controversial circumstances from West Ham and he left in controversial circumstances as well. But I've sat down with him for three hours a couple of years ago. I met him in a, a retail park just near Liverpool and I really enjoyed his company. So put me up on a cross for, for saying that because some United fans now can't see beyond a man who, who criticises um, the club. And I get why that happens, but he was still a top player. Two titles for United, but then he left for Inter Milan. Andy, how was that departure seen at the time? Ince left in the summer of 95 at a time when Konchelskis and Mark Hughes, all of them fan favourites, were allowed to leave the club. What was the reaction of United fans? Unanimously, honestly, people were furious. I know people who went round to Paul Ince's house in Bramall and he welcomed them in and he made them a cup of tea and he said, I never wanted to leave this club. And the sympathy was firmly with the players, was not with Sir Alex Ferguson at all. Now, Fergie... He knew what was coming through. There were some kids who played called the Class of 92, and some of them were decent players. But I'm telling you, any fan who thinks they knew that at the time was completely wrong. Ince's view is that Fergie accepted a bid to sell him without telling him. And Ince also says that a few weeks later, when he was on holiday in Colorado, he got a call. Paul, it's Alex. I've been thinking about this. I think I might have made a mistake. I've been speaking to Martin Edwards. We want you to stay, but there's no guaranteed place with Nicky coming through. And Paul Ince replied, Gaffer, with respect, I've got Inter Milan in the next room because we're in his house and I'm about to sign for them. And you're telling me this now. I'm disappointed the club have accepted a fee without even telling me. Two, I've sweated blood for you and I'm at my peak. For the club to say they'll let me go because of Nicky Butt, very good play that Nicky Butt was, but he wasn't my level. And three, you'll sell me because you need the money for a training ground. And four, I'm playing in the middle with Roy Keane, one of the best midfield partnerships of all time, and you're telling me that you can't guarantee me my place. That is Paul Ince's view, and that's really interesting. One more order of business on Talk of the Devils today, and it's another piece from Laurie. Laurie, you've been talking to Ryan Giggs. I was under Sir Alex for 20-odd years, and he named the team an hour and a half before kickoff. Two hours before kickoff, so um, there would be the odd time Barcelona in the semi-final potentially games like that where he would name the team and want to work on something. But more often than not, everyone knew their jobs. We would just tweak something every now and again. Mm. So I, I thought you know, I'd always obviously had success doing it that way and. Players weren't surprised. Well, and play, if they were surprised, there wasn't enough time to sort of concentrate on that mm. as a manager, I would imagine. But then under Louis, um, he worked a lot more on sort of tactical aspects. Um, obviously, new players, group, different way of playing, different philosophy. And um, I felt he come into club football still with that international mentality regarding meetings, regarding preparation. So for me, for this, for my first job, mm. was perfect in that regard. 
had a good long um, hour chat with him uh, over Zoom, obviously, which is the way to do things nowadays. Um, we're all getting very um, professional, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, obviously, it was, I cover Wales as well. So it's, it's with that kind of in mind, really, rather than any uh, particular uh, United um, leaning, obviously. Wales qualified for the Euros and originally this interview when I requested it was kind of with that in mind that would kind of set up Wales's campaign um, but to be fair they, they said listen let's still do it I was still interested to sort of drill down into his thoughts on how his campaign had gone and just try and sort of find out what it takes to be a manager at international level and how much influence you know Sir Alex might have had or even Louis van Gaal who he was assistant to clearly for two years um, and I thought it was really fascinating there was, there was quite a few little bits that came out um, one particular bit um, sort of early on was him talking about team selection and, and he sort of made a big, big call, I thought. His first game in the campaign against Slovakia dropped Ashley Williams, who was the captain, um, uh, for, for a younger sort of centre-back. and he, But he didn't really see that as a big call. And when we, talk, when we talked earlier about Sir Alex... Uh, refreshing his team um, clearly that's what Giggs I suppose had in mind that he, he knew that you'd have younger players coming through and, and you'd have to at some point make the decision and, and he has got that ability to be quite clinical with it um, and then the other thing was just in terms of when the teams are named so Fergie would he said you know name them you know an hour and a half before kickoff uh, you know he said I think uh, Barcelona 2008 Champions League semi-final was the one exception where you know he obviously wanted to work on specific tactical stuff and there's those stories of Carlos Queiroz taught uh, walking uh, you know United's midfielders through exact positions that he wanted them to be in um, to sort of stymie um, you know Xavi and Iniesta and Messi um, but apart from that he would just you know um, put the team up an hour and a half before kickoff and if players were shocked that they weren't in the team they didn't have time to digest it um, and really kick up any fuss it was just you know get on with it um, whereas Louis van Gaal had come into United with a kind of international mindset from managing Holland and he would work on team shape you know a couple of days in advance um, very meticulously so people had a much clearer idea of who was going to be in the team and that works well for, for, for Ryan now at, at Wales where clearly you have these players for a limited amount of time and how do you best get them into a cohesive unit for certain matches and clearly you need to be working on it you know in the days that you do have because um, it's often you know two or three days in advance of, of the match kicking off that everyone joins up so this uh, stuff like that that I thought was really interesting this stuff on what he thinks Gareth Bale's best position is Aaron Ramsey the instructions that he gave to him um with a sort of view of his own playing career where with Wales he would often roam about a lot more, drop drop deeper to try and get the ball, make stuff happen. Whereas actually for the team, is that always the best thing? And that was something that Aaron Ramsey has, has, has sort of been not accused of because it's, it's obviously a positive that he wants to make a difference. But at times that would then affect his his um, effectiveness for Wales. So Gig said, no, I want you in the number 10, making magic happen. Um, so there's lots of different bits. There's, there's stuff about how low he felt when uh, Wales lost two matches last summer and, and the questions that he sort of gave himself. He spoke to Gary Neville and, and Nicky Butt at that point but also, you know, brought his coaches together and, and had a real um, sort of power, I suppose, on how they would go about it and where they get the points. And, and clearly it works. You know, they, they ended up qualifying. You know, it's 58 years when Wales had qualified for a major tournament when Chris Coleman took them to Euro 2016 and now you know Ryan Giggs has done it in his first campaign so I think it's a, a good achievement and, and this piece just felt like a quite a nice way of reflecting on that and then seeing where he might go in future as a manager. Uh, there's also another article on the FAQ I want to talk about which talks about Wayne Rooney being a potential manager and I want to throw this to you first could you ever see a future where Wayne Rooney's Manchester United manager? If you'd have asked me when I interviewed him in Barcelona 
uh, when he was 17 years old, 18 years old, I would have said not a chance he would ever become a manager. It was one of the most difficult interviews I ever did. There was just nothing coming out. I had to say to uh, his agent, this is going on the front cover of a magazine. It was for 442 at the time. I need far, far more. I, I need I need him to be interesting. Three years later, same interview, much better. He got better and better and better. And he's now turned into a decent columnist i think rooney's worth listening to now and he's got decent views and he's had an, an incredible career and I, I i think the point in the piece is that a lot of his former teammates they can't be bothered with the hassle of management they don't need the money they don't want to be going to sunderland for 11 months into an environment that they've got no control over when they can just stay where they are with the family and Rooney's different. Rooney wants to carry on playing for as long as possible. I watched him at Derby a few months ago, which seems like a few years ago, given the current uh, predicament that we're in. And he was still fantastic. I mean, the, he's not as fast as he was, but he was still fantastic. And if he wants to be a manager, I quite think, I, I, I think he could do well. I really do. I think he's, he became the main man in the dressing room at United. He was a very good Manchester United captain. He wasn't the joker that he was when he was a kid where he'd go up to Fergie and say, what position you play me in tomorrow? He's like, well, I'm not, I'm not even named my team yet. You might not even be playing. He's like, of course, you're going to pick me. I'm the best player. All that's gone. And I think now that there's, um, he's got a confidence, but he's got the maturity, he's got the experience. And his malfunctions, and there's been plenty, which they've been over the tabloids over the years, um, maybe he's realising... Um, that he can't do what he has been doing in the past to be making the front pages. And I'm quite excited about the prospects of Wayne Rooney, the manager, but it's a very, very difficult occupation as his former teammate, Gary Neville will tell him. Absolutely. Laurie, your thoughts on uh, Wayne Rooney, football manager. Yeah, well, I asked Giggs um, about this um, at the end of our conversation. He said that when um, he was uh, Lou's assistant and they were in um, the analytics room, Rooney would often come in and, and you know be really interested in, in what they were looking at, you know, studying the opposition. I know he was doing a pra- practical session as well at the time, so they, they could sort of watch him from that point of view. And, and Giggs's view was that he's a, he's a proper football man, um, uh, which I suppose means he obviously loves the game, you know, and I've spoken to other people where they say that the f- football and training and, and, and playing is... is you know, basically a lot of what his life is around, you know, and I know you'd expect that for, for a player that's been um, so uh, uh, successful, but it still stands that, that he, you know, he's at Derby, he's, he's getting in the mix with things. He's, you can see him on the pitch uh, instructing players where to be, um, you know, guiding the younger lads around a little bit. And so it's almost Philip Koku's coach on the pitch, really. Uh, so he's, he's kind of doing his management a little bit as, as we speak. Um, and, you know, Giggs's view was that, you know, he's got that passion. So that's obviously what you need. You need that dedication as Andy was saying you know it's 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 a difficult job it's, it's a lot of work and if you aren't going to put the hours in you know you're not going to be successful so I think Rooney's definitely got that about him he's got the authority um it's just you know communicating that to players because I know it's that's probably the, the key difference I think from being a, a successful player playing at the top level knowing all those experiences knowing how to win but then actually communicating that to, to players that clearly won't be as the same standard as you are and you know just in general having that 
oratory skills. Obviously, Andy touched upon the fact that as a, as a 17, 18 year old who's very quiet and very shy, he's clearly grown beyond that. But, you, you know, he's, it's perhaps still not a natural thing for him. And, and, and Ryan Giggs has said this himself, that it perhaps wasn't a natural thing for him to stand in front of a group of people and, and give instructions out. So um, that's obviously, a, you know, a question as well. But I, I'd be really excited and, and sort of see where he would land and, and what he could do as a manager. Just wondering whether or not Wayne Rooney, football manager, continues wearing that phenomenal beard he's grown recently, or continues and the with the turtleneck. Yeah, don't forget the turtleneck, <laughs> the tactical turtleneck, as we so speak about. Well, then, listen, that's all from us today on Talk of the Devils podcast. Uh, it's thank you very much to Laurie. Cheers, Carl. And thanks once again to Andy. Cheers, Carl. And uh, yeah, you can read more from both of them on the Athletic right now. Remember, listener, you can get a free 90-day trial by going to theathletic.com slash manunitedpod. Uh, that's theathletic.com slash manunitedpod for a free 90-day trial uh, full of great content, including tactical turtleneck Wayne Rooney and more. Um, thanks for listening to another episode of Talk of Devils podcast. That's a Manchester United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We'll be back next week.